just thrilled to welcome uh, my colleague Stephanie Widevich uh, to Wireside Chat. Stephanie is an American poet, novelist, and essayist. You know, usually I cut these introductions down, but this one was so great uh, just because Stephanie's titles are awesome. And I just felt like I wanted to read them all. Um, as an American poet, novelist, and essayist, her work has been showcased in numerous magazines and anthologies, such as Weird Tales, Nightmare Magazine, The Southwest Review, Year's Best Hardcore Horror, Volume 2, and The Best Horror of the Year, Volumes 8 and 15, as well as many others. Stephanie is the poetry editor for Raw Dog Screaming Press, which is a great uh, small press, and an adjunct at Western Connecticut State University, Southern New Hampshire University, and Point Park University, of course, she likes Southern New Hampshire best. She is a recipient <laughs> of the Elizabeth Matchett Stover Memorial Award, the 2021 Ladies of Horror Fiction Writers Grant, and has received the Rocky Wood Memorial Scholarship for Nonfiction Writing. Stephanie is a member of the Science Fiction Poetry Association, an active member of the Horror Writers Association, and a graduate of Seton, Hills University, Seton Hill University's MFA Program for Writing Popular Fiction. Her Bram Stoker award-winning poetry collection, Bravel, earned a home with Raw Dog Screaming Press alongside other collections, Hysteria, a collection of madness, Morning Jewelry, that's Morning with a U, An Exorcism of Angels, Sheet Music to My Acoustic Nightmare, possibly my favorite of your titles, and The Apocalyptic Mannequin. Her debut novel, The Eighth, is published with Dark Regents Press, and her nonfiction craft book for speculative fiction, Writing Poetry in the Dark is available uh, now from uh, Raw Dog Screaming Press. And in fact, it is a uh, finalist for the Stoker Award, which is going to be uh, announced this weekend uh, at um, StokerCon in Philadelphia. And uh, I'm going to give you a chance to say something in a minute, Stephanie. Don't worry. Uh, I'm pasting um, Stephanie's details uh, into the chat. There we go. And that's where you can find her on Instagram and Twitter, if you're so disposed. Okay, so with that said, um, how exciting that, you're, that, that your craft book on, on poetry is, is a finalist for this prestigious award. Yeah, it feels, it feels like a dream, honestly. It's, I, I've fantasized about writing a book and getting a book like this out into the world for so long. And so the fact that it's, it's out there and it's being well received. And now that there are all kind of eyes on it, it's 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 exciting and terrifying and all of the feelings. Right. I mean, isn't it kind of hard these days to get to get a book of poetry, a book, not just a book of poetry, but a book about the craft of poetry published and recognized yeah. and noticed? Isn't that a bit of an uphill climb? Yeah, and it and it kind of was a little bit of an uphill climb. Um, so I had the idea for it a couple years ago, and I started kind of like nonchalantly dipping it into conversations when I would be talking to um, some of the publishers that I've worked for, and everybody was kind of like, "It's a really great idea, but we don't really know if we're gonna if it's gonna fit into our you know into our right. publishing year or if it's gonna sell super well." And, you know, over the past couple of years, speculative poetry has boomed and it's continuing to grow and it's getting more attention drawn to itself. And so when I was talking to Jennifer, who runs Raw Dog Screaming Press, and then her husband, John Edward Lawson, also co-runs the press, and he's the current president of the HWA right now, 
we were kind of talking about, you know, it's their 20th year as publishers. And we were kind of talking about, you know, poetry being a focal point for them and wanting to do something that was community driven to help, you know, bring more people in and to kind of, you know, make poetry more accessible and kind of shake off some of the stigma and fear that's kind of, you know, associated with the poem. And so we decided that now would be a good time to kind of unleash it <laughs> into the world and um, release the Kraken. Yes, release it. <laughs> Let it all out for sure. Yeah. So felt very, very lucky to be working with such wonderful, um, it, wonderful people. I'm kind of I'm kind of shocked, actually, to hear that that it's their 20th year. Yeah. I mean, it, it, they, to me, when I hear that name, I think, oh, they're one of those, you know, really kind of up and coming scruffy new publishers. Oh. But no, they've been around for quite a while. Oh, yeah. They've been in the game for a long time. And their focus, which is also kind of cool, is even when they were just because they started out, I think, as a journal, um, which then like kind of, you know, obviously moved into a press and everything. But their focus has always been poetry because John um, is a poet first and foremost. So they really wanted to you know, to focus on genre poetry and giving it a home and kind of celebrating it. So it's a nice kind of like full circle moment, I think, for for all of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's awesome that it worked out that way. Very much so. Yeah. <laughs> so so like our program is a fiction writing program. We mm -hmm. don't teach poetry at, at the SNU MF, online MFA. So people are probably wondering, well, why the hell are we talking about poetry right now? Um, so and I'm going to I'm going to get to speculative poetry, which is a fascinating topic, which I have a lot of interest in. Um, but before I do that, I wonder if you could kind of respond to like the open ended question of why sh why should fiction writers care about poetry and should fiction writers even be reading poetry? And what is the role of poetry in a fiction writer's life, even if they are not writing it like like you do? Yeah. So this will be kind of long winded. So if I ever, if I get to a point where people want to interject, by all means, please stop me. Um, so I I guess I'll start first by saying that I've, I've always considered myself a poet, first and foremost, even though I went and got my grad school degree in writing popular fiction and stuff as well. Poetry has always kind of been the beginning, middle and end for me. Um, and when I went into um, the grad program, I was terrified because the way that everything was structured is we start working on our thesis day one. We had pages due every month. Um, and it just, it felt so impossible to me because I'm used to sitting here and like tinkering with a few lines. And instead I had to like make 30 pages and give them to my mentor every month. And for a while it felt so daunting that I didn't think that I could do it. And so the way that I kind of loopholed my brain and my kind of way that I learned was that instead of being so terrified of the blank page and kind of starting um, to work on my chapters, I would sit down and write poem versions of what I wanted to write. So I would write poems to my characters. I would write poems that kind of took place or crafted the world that I wanted to write in. Um, my novel, The Eighth, is about the seven deadly sins. So I would write poems mm -hmm. from different perspectives of the sins. And you know, it was really great because then I had a body of work that I could sell while I was working on the book. And I also wasn't afraid of the blank page anymore because I was like, I did this already. I know the story. I know my characters. Now I just have to like write it in a different way. So it kind of 
it helped me generate work that I could actually be selling and using to kind of market myself as an up and coming writer, even if I was just sharing it on my blog or something like that. But then it also kind of helped me shake off the imposter syndrome and sit down and be like, oh, I, again, I, I can do this because I've already cheekily kind of done it. Um, so for me, poetry is is such a great way to kind of work a different type of my brain if I'm stuck in a story or I just need like I need to inject something new and get a new look on things. And it helps me with writer's block a lot. Um, and I'm a big proponent. I like to say that I don't believe in writer's block. I just think there's different ways that we need to tell certain stories. So maybe you're trying to work on a story and it needs to be a poem. Or maybe you're working on a poem and it's not working and it needs to be um, it needs to be a story or something else. So I think that there are a ton of benefits for fiction writers when it comes to um, come to using poetry to actually help them finish their work. And like I said, sell something on the side. Um, and the other thing that we were when we were talking about reading poetry and why it's important for fiction writers is you know, I look at poetry as kind of these, I think there was a term with Allen Ginsberg um, with his poetry and his photography. I think they called it snapshot poetics. And I kind of look at it as kind of this way of describing these indescribable monumental moments, these otherworldly feelings that we have um, and actually getting it on the page. And I think, you know, especially for speculative writers, but also for, you know, people who are writing realistic fiction too, when you're writing about love and terror and these really big emotions, poetry can kind of help you hone in on that and describe it and add, you know, more telling or more showing rather than telling and really kind of get emotionally driven characterization, um, you know, and more fleshed out world building, um, you know, into your prose as well. So I think that there's a ton of benefits just to reading it and kind of learning different coins of phrases and kind of stepping away from maybe more purple prose or cliched language. Um, and I know when I when I was in grad school, I think I was reading anywhere between 20 to 30 poetry collections a year to try to constantly be reworking my brain so my prose didn't feel stagnant or repetitive in any way, shape, or form. Um, so I think that that's, that's a really good way to kind of shake things up when you're writing as well. Yeah, I mean, um, certainly the approach to language seems very different in poetry and in poets than it is in, in fiction writers. I mean, even fiction writers who have a, who are known for a kind of a poetic sensibility, um, they're not writing poetry. They're still ha they still have to be concerned with, you know, I guess the logic of cause and effect, mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. um, poetry can operate by other principles. Um, yeah. Right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to ask a, a question here um, from from one of our attendees who says, I feel that I'm the only poet in my module right now and having trouble in working backstory into my creativity. I write haiku and trying to move into verse, but I don't know how to elaborate myself in the realm you are talking about, Stephanie. OK, when you say backstory, um, Cameron, are you referring like is it more like creative nonfiction? Is it more autobiographical things? Or are you talking about like backstory for just a character that you're working on? And I guess why I'm asking that is because I have a whole bunch of craft book recommendations that I can drop and I can share with Paul and we can kind of get, get those out to everybody. Um, 
and I will say that one of my favorite resource places to look is um, Rose Metal Press. They have a lot. They have a great book on writing the prose poem, which might be something that's really beneficial to kind of maybe take like a medium step into writing like half poetry, half prose before you strictly get into prose. Um, They also have, um, let me see, I have it on my shelf, but I don't know if I can pick it up. They have a, a, a family remembrance one as well. I can't remember the title, but I can pull it later on. Um, that kind of helps with, you know, kind of like memory retention and things like that um, and pulling from that and injecting it into your pose. So those, those two books might really help. Um, but in terms of something else that you can try, something that I like to do, especially um, when I'm writing backstory or doing something that feels particularly vulnerable, is I'll set a timer and I will write for five minutes, like write by hand, usually for five minutes straight without lifting up my pen and not kind of censor myself at all and just kind of let it all come out. And then I'll go back and I'll look at that and I'll mine words and phrases and then I'll start using them and pulling them to start, you know, crafting a poem or crafting a chapter, or getting topics and kind of I kind of look at it as a puzzle almost to kind of see like these were my unfiltered thoughts. So if I want to filter them into something, what can I take with me? What can I leave behind and how can I reshape that? That's that's really interesting. I mean, it's 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 evident to me just from listening to your to what you've said so far basically the, the truth of what you said at the outset of our conversation, which is that first and foremost, you're a poet. Um, I was especially struck by your method of outlining, which is essentially to write a poem. I mean, you were using poems as outlines, as character yeah. sketches. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were performing the same or an analogous task to those very familiar tasks that writers often set themselves or creative writing programs set their students, you know, write your character sketch of your protagonist your secondary character, you know, mm-hmm. give us an outline, break it down into beats. But you're doing something else by writing these poems, which are giving you access to your story through another direction. Um, what is that access? What are you accessing through your poems? Honestly, I think it's more of a vulnerability. And I think it's kind of taking the mask even off of the character. Um, because like, I love, I love a good character sketch that is kind of like, okay, you know, what, how hot, how, is your character what color of their eyes like I love doing stuff like that because I'm a very visual learner so I usually do that and then I'll go to Pinterest and I'll mood board the entire character and then I start asking the deeper questions about the character and that's when I usually start writing Mm -hmm. the poems because I could say yeah I'm sorry I was going to just say did did those poems then find their way directly into your um, novel or might they have another life that uh, (laughs) being published elsewhere Yeah, I mean, there are sometimes I'll take, like I said, I'll mine like words and phrases and stuff from them and kind of sneak them into um, into my into my fiction. Um, I usually I I usually don't publish them. I think there are a couple that have made their way um, out into the world, especially as um, since I've been writing like a lot of witchcraft themes lately. Um, So those poems have kind of snuck out here and there. But I mean, mostly I, I just use them as outlines. Um, and I and I kind of almost feel like weirdly protective of of them mm-hmm. because it, they are my character's thoughts and emotions and feelings and all of that's going into the book. So I feel like it's the diary entry that they wrote. Nobody, nobody but me really needs to, <laughs> to see that. So, right. yeah. 
But it also, I will say that it's really cool because when, when the eighth was published, I did share some of them like on my blog and stuff like that to kind of give like a sneak peek behind the process. And when I'm talking about marketing to students, I like that kind of stuff is so important because readers love that. Like they will eat that up. They want to know your process. They want to know all the stuff behind, you know, behind the doors, what you're doing in your office while you're creating these characters. So while you're marketing the book and like doing pre-orders and getting ready for the release, if you can share some of that stuff, that's only going to create more hype. So it's a really great way to kind of constantly be using everything that you're doing to get more momentum for your book. Here's a question from mm -hmm. uh, Madeline who asks, when I'm writing, I can't shake off the feeling that everything I could create has already been done before. Do you have any tips to combat negative thoughts like these? So, and you'll hate this answer, so I apologize. <laughs> But I mean, because I feel that, too. Um, and the, the best thing is to you just have to write through it um, because that's just that's the imposter syndrome that's kind of talking, that's trying to prevent you from getting your your creative work out. And that's something that all artists go through. We all want to be unique. We don't want anybody to say that we're pulling from somebody else. And and it's hard. And I, I understand that and I respect that. Um, and I know something that I that I tend to do um, when I'm writing, if if I have something that is very thematic, for instance, like again with the eighth, um, it's more religious horror and um, kind of like possession horror. And I did not, unless it was assigned for class while I was in my program, I didn't read or watch anything that was possession based or you know religious horror because I didn't want anything, any outside stuff to influence me. Um, I know some writers who will just dive in and make that their whole world. <laughs> For me, I like to kind of keep it separate. Um, so that might be something that you can try, see which method works for you, because it might inspire you and you can kind of watch something and be like, OK, you know, this is I've seen this a million times. How can I put a fresh spin on it? Or maybe you don't want that, you know, at all. So, you know, either lean all the way in or lean all the way out and just kind of trust your instincts and yourself as a writer. You know, and, and another thing that strikes me in listening to you, Stephanie, is a lot of times we have this um, impression of, of poets as being these kind of rarefied creatures who are who are scarcely flesh and blood, perhaps, and, and you know, are, are up in their ivory tower somewhere concerned with, you know, the the, you know, the mysteries of of uh, of language and it's and it's, you know, magical associations whereas you are extremely grounded in the um the business of being like a successful freelance writer like how to market your work um the the ways you can connect with your audience um is there a kind of a dichotomy there or 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 is it is it um is that just a, a, a outmoded stereotype of, of how we think about poets? I don't I don't think it's a like, I don't think you're far off. I think that that stereotype is kind of there initially for a reason, because I always, you know, poetry terrified me when I was younger. It felt so like I don't want to say elitist, but it felt it felt very elitist. It felt like you had to be like you know, the, the smartest human in the entire world, an absolute expert on everything, or you had to be like, you know, lost in the woods somewhere like Byron, who's like staring at the moon for, 
six hours a night and not talking to anybody. Like it was one or the other and it felt very inaccessible to me. Um, and I can remember my AP English teacher telling me to write a sonnet and just having like a complete breakdown over it. Um, because I just, I got so focused on it and I got so, you know, inside the poem that I couldn't write it. And it was just, it was horrifying. So I think, you know, when poetry feels unattainable, it becomes really hard to try to think of yourself as, you know, freelancing it or building a business around it. It kind of gets this reputation for maybe something that you do privately, something that, you know, you do when you're a teenager and it's emo and, you know, you don't share it with anybody and it's all bad poetry. And, you know, it wasn't until, um, so I, I do a lot with like mental health and horror and I started writing poetry first and foremost when my therapist as a child recommended, um, that I start writing poetry as a way to kind of talk about some of the things that I didn't feel comfortable talking about. And when it wasn't an assignment from a teacher and I felt like it was something that I was doing and kind of having these conversations with myself, I started feeling like it was more obtainable and it was kind of more accessible for me. And I started reading other poets and that weren't Byron and Shakespeare and all of like the, the classics that, you know, your teachers are handing you in high school. And I started looking at free verse and I started reading haikus and I, I started seeing that like, the limitations that we put on poetry are all self-imposed. I mean, there are forms and there are styles, you know, sure. But I mean, poetry is kind of like this living, breathing thing. And I think so many things can be poetry. And so when you shake off some of those stereotypes and realize that you have so much room to be creative, you can kind of make it whatever you want. And that's honestly, that's, that's kind of what I did. And I started treating it like, these were diary entries. When I wrote Hysteria, um, it was all based on asylum horror. And so I was doing a lot of like urban exploring and I was spending the night in like abandoned asylums and I was taking pictures and writing poems in these like isolation chambers that were terrifying and like posting them on Instagram. And I got people so excited about the fact that like they were coming along with me to read these character profiles and see these pictures that when hysteria came out, people lost it. And it was, it was crazy because I felt like I had broken every role. I didn't listen to anything anybody said, and I just had fun and it worked. And I think that that's something that we can get really um, bogged down in, especially like when we're, when we're studying stuff, because it does feel very formulaic and very by the book sometimes that we forget that like being an artist is fun. And being a creative, you know, has all of these un, like limitless, you know, things that we can do. So it has to be a good balance, I think, at times. But yeah, I'm all for I'm all for breaking expectations and stereotypes for sure. That's awesome. I love that. I love <laughs> the idea of you going around to these old asylums and hanging oh, yeah. out. And, <laughs> it was know, a wild and, time. It was a lot yeah. of fun. <laughs> So so that kind of gets to another thing that I want to talk about a little bit. And, and we, we do have some more questions, which I'll get to in a, in a bit as well. Okay. Um, the idea of speculative poetry, I think, has always it's always been interesting to me because I at first, like when I was when I was I wanted to be a poet, actually, before I became a fiction writer um, all the way through high school. And until I got into college and met like actual poets and and I was like. And I realized that, wow, these people are much better writers than I am. And they they are genuine poets. They have a poetic sensibility in a way that I just simply did not. And then I shifted over to fiction, which, as it turned out, really was where I was meant to be to be in the mm -hmm. first place. 
But um, I remember because I, in those days I was reading almost exclusively speculative fiction. And, and I remember conversations with people then and since then about the nature of speculative poetry, because poetry in and of itself seems speculative. It seems like inherently speculative. So mm -hmm. why would you need to uh, go a step further and classify a particular type of poetry as speculative? And, and if you do that, what is it that distinguishes that poetry from other forms of poetry? Yeah, so I think that this is a, a really good question because it kind of brings to mind um, kind of the difference between literary and genre. Sometimes they can wear the same hat. Sometimes it's very easy to tell them apart. I could hand out Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. We could read it as a literary novel. We could read it as science fiction. We could read it as a trans narrative. We could read it as a horror novel. We could read it as fantasy. I mean, so I think sometimes there is this kind of overlapping that happens, which is, and I love hybrid stuff like that. So I think that that's, um, that's really impressive and not something that we should try to pigeonhole. Um, but I think the other, uh, you know, kind of on the other spectrum of that, we're kind of looking at poems that um, are more genre forward in the sense that you can tell that you're in a different world or that you can tell that you're in space or dealing with some type of apocalyptic dystopia, um, that you're writing something about monsters or creatures or, you know, impending dread. And even saying that, like, I mean, horror has a thousand different definitions and what's scary to me might not be scary to you. And if you go on Twitter for five seconds and you jump into that discourse, you'll see everybody has a lot of feelings about it. Um, yeah. So I, I do think that there is some of it that's open to personal interpretation and kind of luck of the draw of how the editor is interpreting your work and kind of the spin that you're putting on it. Um, but I tend to I, I tend to think that it is more genre forward. Like, you know, that you're talking like I said, about witches or, you're, you know, you have extensive world building in your poem. You have, you know, atypical creatures and languages or you have, you know, Cthulhu's popping up or you're writing about sirens. I, so I think that there is kind of, you know what, when you see it, but it also can shape shift. So it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of, it's kind of a hard thing to answer. <laughs> Well, it does remind me of genre in, in another way as well, which is that, you know, if you try to think if you if you get into a conversation with somebody about, like, for example, what was the first speculative fiction novel? You know, and some mm -hmm. people will go, well, it was Frankenstein. Um, but other people will say, well, no, you know, there's if you trace it back, you can go all the way back to the Epic of Gilgamesh and, and find the origins of speculative yep. fiction there. And in fact, you might argue that all fiction was is inherently speculative and yeah. and and so-called realistic or mimetic fiction is just one branching of that and a, and a fairly recent one. Um, yeah, I love that. So would you say the same thing is true of, of speculative poetry? I mean, would you go back and say like, well, the Odyssey, that's, yeah. you know, that's that's a, a fantastic poem. I mean, in every sense of the word is that mm -hmm. would you say that that is a belongs in the in the um, the family tree of, of speculative poetry? Oh, yeah, I absolutely think you can make that argument. And I think that that's a great like if you're if you're someone who is interested in speculative poetry, I think it's really cool to challenge yourself to go back and read, you know, some of the classics like that and read Beowulf and read, you know, some of this stuff and kind of, you know, take 
you know, take a taste of that and then read some more contemporary stuff and start forming your own opinions and seeing kind of where you think that you fall into that. Um, Cause that, I mean, that's, that's going to do nothing but strengthen you as a writer and also strengthen your discourse as a writer, because people are going to ask you to talk about these things. You're going to be on panels. You're going to be giving workshops. You're going to be, you might be teaching a class. Um, so it, it's good to kind of formulate where you stand and kind of see where everybody else stands in the argument as well. And, and in fact, that kind of reminds me, and I, I apologize to this person, even though they are absent, but I, and I never get their name right. But but the, the, the woman that wrote that um, that that new translation of Beowulf, um, uh, Maria Dalva Hadley, something like that. Yeah. Um, she comes out of the horror community. I mean, she's a genre writer and, and she she decided that she was going to breathe new life into this into this classic yes. poem. That's the one that begins with with something like um, uh, are, are there. Does no does no one does no one believe in heroes anymore, bro? Something like oh, that. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Mean, very, well, very, and it, very it's kind of like. And, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just I was gonna piggyback what you were saying. It's like Madeline Miller when she wrote Cersei. So yes, she exactly. took. Yeah, I mean, she took Cersei and was like, you know, she she was done dirty, and I'm gonna give her a whole new life, and I'm gonna put a feminist horrific spin on her, and show you why she's you know, the most powerful witch that everybody should be afraid of. And it was beautiful. And she it's poetic. And I mean, everything about it is such an interesting take on on like rewriting genre and reinterpreting genre. So, yeah, I think, yes, bravo. That was a really great example. Yeah. yeah. So so let me um, let me put you on the spot. I did kind of warn you about this. Um, so I hope I hope you will you will not think too ill of me. Um, but I would love it if you could give us an example of speculative poetry by reading yeah. something. Of yeah, your own. I would love to. Let me see here. So I I actually picked the poem that got published in the Southwest Review. Um, so it was titled Family Offerings. Alrighty. <clears throat> you pour the tea. I'll call the coyotes. Make sure the violence is bottled, ready to sell. If the attic door is locked, Simply remove it, but keep the basement flooded. We need the echoes of drowning in the house, the smell of flesh and mildew on the walls. Have you called the plumber? I think there are still bones in the sink. The toilet stuffed with parchment. We're still missing the rotted corpse of a bat. I did the laundry yesterday, washed the sheets twice, three times for luck. They're folded outside in the cemetery to keep mother warm. There was something else, an appointment, a missed call. I scheduled the exorcist to revive them, made sure the herbalist will plant the poisons when they're gone. You picked up the pomegranates, yes? Made the dandelion wine? The caterer should be here at midnight. I already sampled the host. They're severing everyone's tongue as we speak. Now it's just cookies and thorns, the candied petals of violets, the arthritic sound of grandmother's limp. Make sure the table is set the brick dust removed from the doors. I washed the windows with candle wax, already covered the mirrors. It won't be long now. I can already hear them moving in their graves. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank and I think you. I, I think I can see what you mean about um, genre forward in that poem, because 
that's a poem I think that stands on its own. I mean, you don't have to categorize it as anything. Mm -hmm. It's just a great poem. Um, but you can see all of these kind of tropes and familiar echoes of um, of speculative and specifically horror mm -hmm. um, works. In, and I don't mean necessarily like, um, you know, call out specifically to, you know, this novel or that movie. Yeah. But just kind of a general atmosphere that's pulling from all of them at once. Yeah. So I really I wanted to do something that kind of put my own spin on the haunted house, um, but kind of make it the haunted the haunted family. Mm -hmm. I'm a diehard, diehard Adams family fan. And I grew up watching all of like the old black and white Adams family. I've I can quote you all of the movies. I've watched the monsters. Like those are my people. <laughs> they are <Okay>. who <laughs> raised me. And so when I wanted to do this poem, I wanted to do something that was, I mean, still noticeably creepy and eerie, but also something that kind of played homage to it, had some tongue-in-cheek, like dark gallows humor in it. Um, that just kind of showed, you know, a weird family that's out there preparing right. to have a have a dinner party and lay <laughs> offerings for their dead who are not dead. <laughs> so and, and I mean that was published in the Southwest Review. Yes. Right? Which is not exactly known as a, you know, a horror centric magazine. Yes. Mm -hmm. It wasn't published in Nightmare magazine, for example. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah, I was I mean, I was equally as shocked. I will <laughs> I won't lie to you. <laughs> um, but I think that that's a really, really great example. And that's kind of why I chose to read this one because I do think that so many magazines are opening up and being willing to take on speculative poetry now. So I would have never in a million years thought that I had a chance at getting in the Southwest Review, not because I think I'm a bad poet, but because I just they don't want me. <laughs> they don't want my mm -hmm. words my, they, like I'm too creepy for them. Um, but yet it happened and they published it. And then it, that poem also won the Elizabeth Matchett Stover Award, which also blew my mind. Yeah. Um, so I think that, again, that's a, a good call out to kind of not pigeonhole yourself or think that, you know, just because you write, you know, a particular genre that you're closed off to all of these other places because you're not. And I think that's why it's really important to know how to sell yourself, to know how to talk about your work and to be well versed in hybridity and kind of talking about it. So you can show why I know this might not be what you usually publish, but this is why I'm still a good fit for you, because we have to advocate for ourselves as writers. That's that's what we do our forever and always <laughs> for as no, long absolutely. as we write. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you, in order to do that, you had to know that there was this magazine, the Southwest Review out there, and you had to know what they published. Right. Yes. So you, yes. you have to educate yourself. And I'm now I'm kind of speaking through you to our to our students yeah, who, are, who are here. But I mean, you know, you have to educate yourself as to what is out there, the breadth of it, not just what is. I mean, it's important to know what the venues are in your specific genre, mm -hmm. wh where you can be published, what magazine or website is interested in this or that and isn't interested in this or that. But it helps to have a wider perspective, I think, and and I, I think your um your the placement of this poem is a perfect example of that, because you yeah. you know if you had pigeonholed yourself, that never would have happened. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why like I always recommend and. You know, if you if you haven't gone yet if, to AWP, I think AWP, I mean, it, it's huge. So it's a little intimidating at times. Um, but to walk around and just see all of the different publishers and all of the different magazines and zines that exist, especially for me, because they're usually not horror. Um, but I do think that, like, I mean, I found so many like 
queer magazines that I absolutely loved and that I read religiously that I know I have some horror pieces that would be great fits for them. I have, you know, I've read some of like Grey Wolf um, Press and I've read um, Redhead and Press and I've I've seen how they, they'll do a little bit of edgier stuff sometimes. And so I might have to tone down myself a little bit. But I still think that I could sell to, you know what I mean? So I think, mm -hmm. you know, even going to different genre conventions, like if you're a science fiction writer, go to a horror convention, go to world fantasy, go to different places and kind of see how you fit in um, because you do. You just have to you have to figure it out. Right. And then that's how you can sell yourself across genres. Um, I focused on horror for for such a long time and it, and I don't regret that because I needed to do it. I needed to educate myself in my primary genre. But I think it's so important to go outside of that, too. Once you feel like you have a good understanding, I think you have to constantly be pushing yourself. Don't be afraid to reinvent yourself and try different things um, because people are hungry for originality and you might be a fantasy writer who tries, you know, science fiction and you put such a unique spin on your science fiction that you immediately jump to the top because you're you're different. You're a different voice. You're something that they've been hungering for. So that's I mean, yeah, don't limit yourself at all. Yeah, that's very inspiring. I mean, and it's it, that's why it's important to read outside your genre so that yes. you can so that you can familiarize yourself with what other people are doing in other genres. Yeah, yeah. And you can bring sure. your own your own unique spin to it. Yes. Um, so let me go. To, let me ask a couple of the questions that have been okay. posed in the Q and A in the chat. Um, all right. Let's see. I'm rewriting a lore horror story into a verse form. Rhyme scheme works for me, but in my class, I am not allowed to focus on the wording rather the story and content. I don't know if my content is being expressed correctly. How do I make my creativity have a voice? So, so this, it's a poetic retelling of a specific piece of folklore. Is that, am I correct in, in that? That's what I would gather okay. from, uh, from that first sentence. Okay, so, it, and it seems like, okay, so it seems like you have a rhyme scheme but the rhyme scheme isn't something that's being championed. They want you to focus more on the story and kind of fleshing out the overall arc rather than, again, like focusing on the wording and the rhyme scheme and kind of putting it into that. So. I mean, this sounds like almost yeah. something like you said a minute, a minute ago, like maybe does, you're working yeah. on something that's like you think it's a story or somebody else wants it to be a story. Yeah. But maybe yeah. It's really a poem. <laughs> I was going to say it. Part of me wants to say, write it both ways. And then mm. I recognize that we're all, you know, we all have lives and I'm giving you a <laughs> double assignment for something that you're working on. Um, but I, I think. I do think that you have to advocate for yourself. I think that if, if you really feel strongly that it needs to be told in a specific way, um, I think that. I mean, you, you certainly need to honor that, even if it happens outside of this class. Um, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't distrust your instincts on it. But I do think that there is some some validity in kind of getting the arc out first and then going back and focusing on um, on the minute details. So, for instance, like think of it, this is like more of a macro exercise rather than a, a micro exercise. Um, 
and you can, and if you're struggling with that, I mean, like I said, sometimes, you know, I'll go into Pinterest and I'll mood board a whole, a whole chapter, a whole story. Um, I know SNHU has really great character sketches that you can kind of use to kind of help, you know, do the, do the plot arc and stuff like that. Um, but I, yeah, just because one person's telling you it should be a certain way, if you don't, if you don't agree with that, I mean, you're, you're here to express yourself. So I think you do have to advocate and kind of sit down and have a discussion about it. At least that's what I tell my students to do with me, but I don't want to like go on anybody's toes. <laughs> so. Um, so you mentioned using your, your um, creating your mood board. Yes. And there's, there's kind of a question that's related to that here that I want to ask, which is like, how can a, how can a writer effectively use Instagram? Um, I'm also a visual artist, but I kind of love Insta. Could you talk about that a bit more? So if you're a visual artist and you're not drawing or like doing something with what you're working on, I think that that's like a really great opportunity to continue to create hype around your work. So I would paint, I would sculpt, you know, do whatever you do, post it, talk about how it's feeding into your process. Um, when I, you know, I'll share like aesthetic photos. Sometimes I do my own photography. I'll share when I was, when I was in grad school, I used to make my desk kind of a reflection of what I was working on. So it'd be really spooky. It would have all kind of stuff, you know, like hanging on, like hanging around it. I'd have figures and I would share that. Um, anything that's kind of giving this kind of peek behind the curtains again to make people excited about your stuff because if you're excited and passionate about it people will feel that and get excited too um, and I think art is such a cool way um, to do that I know there's I can't think of her Instagram title off the top of my head but she um, she's really into southern gothic and so she does a lot of that in her um, in her writing life. But then she creates these Southern Gothic like murder house dollhouses. And she is. I, oh, my gosh. Like I, when I saw the first one, I was like, I'll follow this woman to the grave. Whatever she writes, whatever she creates, like I need to have it in my in my life. So that stuff is, I mean, showing different parts of who you are as an artist and a creative People love that. And it's and it's speaking to you authentically, which I think is also most important because people want to know the authentic artist, not necessarily a caricature, you know, of who you are. So your me mention of the Southern Gothic and some other mentions of things tonight mm -hmm. have, have put me in mind of the reason that I wanted you to, to come for the to, to be our guest this month in the first place, which is that you had posted um, I think on Twitter, and I saw this post about how how you had um, just sold a new um, poetry project, um, which is based on um, my, probably my favorite Shirley Jackson novel, uh, which is We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Yes. Um, so um, I, I just wanted to to ask you to to talk a little bit about that project. Yeah, because uh, it's a very interesting project um, and maybe even a little about Shirley Jackson, because you say you yes. like um you know, you like uh, families and haunted houses and, and she's you know. my yes, <laughs> she's my end all be all. Um, yeah, I I adore Shirley Jackson. Um, I fell in love with The Haunting of Hill House when I was when I was younger. Can't tell you how many times I've read that, watched the Netflix uh, version of it. What, what did um, you think of the Netflix version? I loved it. I think I think yeah. it's very it's very different. 
<laughs> very, very different. But I, I do think it has so much charm and just terror in it. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I just, yeah. And, you know, it wasn't, so about five, six years ago, um, I focused my research on the archetype of the witch. And that was when I picked up We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And it was like, that's my favorite book. I read it every year. Um, I just got like a giant blackberry bush tattooed on my arm. Like <laughs> I just, I'm completely, that book just speaks to me on, on such a deep level for so many different reasons. Um, and Shirley Jackson was, you know, she was ridiculed and kind of looked at as a witch. She had one of the biggest occult libraries in the U.S. Um, they said she wrote with a broomstick. She did tarot cards. She, I, I mean, she um, was kind of rumored to have this psychic inclination. Like she could tell when women were pregnant. She could name the gender. So she was a very interesting woman, which just makes me love her more. Um, and I had my first child back in January of 2022. Um, and I had postpartum really, really bad. And so the first thing that I did was I, I reached for my comfort book, which is we have always lived in the castle. And I started, which is, you know, we can, if that's it, another conversation I for mean, another if, time. If anybody knows, if anyone here knows that book. Yeah, it's very dark. Is, that, is a, that is a very telling uh, bit is. of information about, about you, who you are as a person and as a writer, I think. It's, anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, you're fine. Um, but so I started rereading it and, you know, it, it did, I've, I got such solace and such comfort from it. Um, and it kind of reminded me of like any time that I've been struggling in the past, I always turn to poetry. Like poetry has gotten me through so many different things in my life. And so I, you know, I sat down and I was like, I recognize I have a newborn. I recognize life is chaotic, but I really need like every day. I need time to write for me, for my mental health. And I would come upstairs with that book and I kind of lived inside of it for three months. Um, and uh, I wish I had the copy here. If I opened it and showed you, I, I mean, it looks, it looks real scary. I'm not going to lie to you, but like there are, there are word circles and, and arrows. Like I look, I could tell you words that she used multiple times. I could pull themes. I could pull phrases and I did. I kind of just existed in Jackson's language. Um, and then I did a lot of really cool. I did some found poetry that I pulled from it. I wrote poems that were just inspired by it. Um, I wrote an article for Lit Reactor on using bibliomancy to write, which is kind of this occult practice of, you know, kind of opening up a book and putting your finger on a word and then starting to write based off of that phrase, that line, anything like that. And so I, you know, I did that and I did it religiously for three months. And by the end of it, I had a collection and it was so different from anything I've ever done before in my life. Um, I think you can still see some of me in the book. Like if people have been longtime readers, they can look at it and be like, okay, this is why Tovich is just in a different, <laughs> in a different way. Um, but it was, it was scary to kind of use a new voice and try a new style. But when I handed it to my publisher, um, you know, she was, she was very supportive and she, she really enjoyed it. And we've kind of made, um, 
because the way that I went about writing this is so strange. <laughs> We're putting like a craft essay in the book so I can tell other people a little bit about my process in case they're struggling or they want, you know, to try something new. Um, and again, kind of reimagining, you know, certain worlds and paying homage to certain writers we love. It was just, it was a whole different experience. Um, and I felt so like, I felt like such a weight was lifted off of me at the end of this because it was like I was able to just like dump all of these feelings on the page. They were scary. They were haunting. They were, you know, rageful. All of this stuff that like, you know, we're starting to see patterns of in horror with, you know, the female rage and the werewolf and hunger and stuff like this. And it just I'm such an advocate for poetry as as kind of its own little version of therapy. I think it's so wonderful. And this book was such a a freeing testimony to that. <laughs> Thank <It's>, you, Paul. <laughs> I do. No, that's, yeah. Very, I'm very bubbly, but I'm very scary on the page. It all has to come out somewhere. <laughs> right. You, um, I mean, in a way, you kind of lived in the castle. You lived I did. in oh, the absolutely. castle for all that time. Yes. Um, Yeah, I see that comment from, from Paula there. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was a wild time. Um Do you have a title for that for that project? I do. So it's it's called On the Subject of Blackberries. Oh great. Which I fought with for a long time. I wasn't sure because that didn't feel like scary enough to me. Um, but the more that I sat with it, that was the first title that came to mind. And I did want it to kind of have this, you know, this hybrid nature to it where, you know, it's it's definitely horror, but you could also read it kind of um, in like a Charlotte Perkins Gilman yellow wallpaper kind of way where it does have this, you know, journey of a woman going through postpartum. And right. you're not sure if there are literal people on the walls or if there is, you know, maybe just she's going through something. So I kind of like that it was like on the fringe of that. Right. But I mean, even the, the yellow wallpaper that that is, I mean, regardless of how you read it, that's a very disturbing story. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, there, that is a, <laughs> yes. I mean, that counts as as horror in my book, even if yes. it, even if it doesn't have a, you know, uh, an overt speculative element yeah. in it. Yeah. So um, and let me ask you about that, actually, yeah. because this is another thing that that I wondered about from time to time. And in our of course, in our program, you know, we have, uh, you know, we generally classify horror under speculative fiction, but it doesn't have to be. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the dividing line for us really is, is there a, is there a speculative element in it? Is there something fantastic in it or is there not? And if there's not, then it falls more under the rubric, I suppose, of like psychological horror, something yeah. like that. I mean, like one of the scariest books I ever read was Helter Skelter, which is not even a work of fiction. It's a work of nonfiction, yeah. you know, about something that really happened. Yeah. And I couldn't finish it. I mean, it literally just scared oh, yeah. me to death. Yeah. Um, and um, so that that is a horror, a piece of horror nonfiction, I suppose yeah. you would say. I mean, horror, really, when you start to think about it, it's far more than the narrow slice uh, of of literature or of art that we think yeah. of, right? It's far mm -hmm. more, far more. It's like Cthulhu, is right? It's, it's many a, faces. It's, it's everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really is. And like I, I always, I find this to be a very fun exercise. My husband will disagree with me. 
because <laughs> he's not a writer or that big of a reader. But when we go to Barnes and Noble, like I, one of my favorite books is Follow Me to Ground by the Irish writer Sue Ransford. And she basically wrote a female reimagining Celtic spin on Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. And it's in fiction. And I sit there and I'm like, there's no way that that book should be shelved here. Like it should be, it's a thousand percent a horror novel, but it can also masquerade as a family who thinks that they're doing something that maybe they're not. I mean, you can, right. I, that's one of the things that I love about horror is like you said, it can literally be everywhere and it can wear a lot of faces. Sometimes you might not recognize it. You might pick up a book thinking you're in for one thing and there, there you go. So, you know, that's, we're right. always just lurking in the, in the shadows somewhere. Right. And I mean, even, you know, the the Haunting of Hill House is a, is a novel that really plays with that a lot. I mean, for a lot of the novel anyway, yeah. it's a question of like how much is in the person's mind, how much is external to the person. Um, yeah. And it's a it's a tightrope act. And she she was Jackson was really good at walking that tightrope. Oh, brilliant. And it's it's cool that you bring that up. I'm reading um, Lisa Kroger and Melanie Anderson's Toil and Trouble, um, a history of women's positions in in the occult. And the whole thing talks about like very similar to Hill House, where it's like some people believed it. Some people, um, you know, were acclaimed psychics and mediums and all of this stuff. And then you had women who were on the other side and who were trying to debunk it. And it feels like that's what she's doing in Hill House. You have both Mm -hmm. sides of the coin. And she's there to show you that, like, sometimes things aren't black and white. Like, things can exist in the thin places and the gray spaces. And I think as writers in general, I think that's that's good advice to to remember as we as we create. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm going to as we're kind of winding down here, I, I'm going to ask a couple more qu- quick questions. Mm-hmm. Um, here's one from uh, Livia. And she says, I'm in the revision phase and I'm struggling to start. Do you have a preferred place or method of starting a revision? So, yeah. So when I revise um, and I'm I'm almost not the person to give advice for this. So I I try to stay away from the piece for as long as I can within reason of deadlines and stuff like that. And then I usually start from the beginning and I start reading Um if you are like in the middle of your book or the middle of your story, maybe go to the the earliest chapter break and pick up there. Um, but I like to kind of get a sense of the whole picture before I jump into anything, just so I I can remember all the moving pieces of of the story. So go to the the closest chapter break or start from the beginning and kind of reread, take notes ask yourself questions in the margin. I yell at myself in the margin sometimes and tell myself that this is bad, but I don't have a way to fix it. So I need to come back. And I kind of have those conversations either in my notes or, you know, on the screen. Um, And I try not to put a whole lot of pressure on myself because you can revise, you know, more than once. So get through everything, you know, at your own pace and, and don't rush yourself would be my best advice. Uh, and here's here's a, another question. Uh, Cameron has been has been asking a lot of very deep questions, um, and I'm going to just pluck out um, a portion of one of his questions. Okay. Um, in poetry, um, 
or actually, let me ask this question. How how can you make a character show multiple uh, to show different to show different? How do how do you make a character remain like a cons consistent, believable character and yet show a range of different emotions, you know, within the context of a story? So this, do, does that okay. make sense? Yeah. So like, so how would I do that in a poem? And so it would translate or just maybe I'll. Yeah, maybe I'll answer it like this. So if I if that's something that you're struggling with, I this is how I would this is how I personally would do it. I would write, I would sit down and I and this is why I kind of like poetry as an outline because I'm not touching the document with the story, so it feels like I'm not messing anything up. Like I can kind of I'm doing my own thing over here. I would write a poem and I would kind of break it up in sections. Like I would start number one and I would write one version of the character. Number two, a different version. Number three. And I would just keep building and building kind of like you're, you're sculpting or you're working on a pot or something like that on the, on the throwing on the will. Um, and then you kind of have all of these different layers to the character that you can start weaving in. And what's nice about having that again as the poem is you can start plucking phrases and words and stuff like that from it to kind of put it into your um, into your prose and start building it out that way. And I think once you do something like that, you kind of have this cool like multiple identity thing that's happening here. Um, so you'll get to know your character in a way that you might not have if you're just focusing on, you know, a longer project. You have the short down and dirty version of them right there um, in poetic form. I mean, one thing that really strikes me in listening to you to you say that is like two things actually. Writing is work, you know. Oh yeah. Writing it, is yeah. hard work, um, and it's not a simple process of just putting words down on the page. It's an iterative process of of yeah. doing that over and over and over again and coming at things from different angles. So it's a lot of work. But the other thing that I realized just in listening to you talk about it, the tone of your voice and the kind of the the shine in your eyes is is like you have to love it, right? Oh it yeah. It has to be yes. fun. It has mm -hmm. to be fun and joyful. Yeah. So how do you how do you maintain that joy? So like I said, I think it's I think it's important to to get away from the story, but still be living in it. So like I like I, I talked about doing mood boards and character boards. I love doing that. I make playlists for my characters, playlists for my novels. Um, so when I'm commuting to work, I can put on a character's playlist and I'm jamming out, but also kind of getting to know them and thinking about them. And then when I have to, or not when I have to, but when I'm ready to like sit down, I'm excited. Like I, I'm filled with different angles and stuff like that. And I mean, writing, writing is hard. We all know it. It's sometimes the words come, sometimes they don't. But when you're doing all of this different stuff and you're not just like looking at a page and you're not just so focused on your word count, I think it it takes some of the pressure off because we do. We put so much pressure on ourselves. So if we can do fun things that help us kind of draft without sitting there and writing longhand for hours at end and working in a character sketch, do all of these other things like do visual stuff on Instagram and make playlists that we can share with people that we're working on. That that helps you live the story and be excited to be in it too. It starts to not feel like work at that yeah, point. You're, you're kind of fool, you're kind of tricking yourself. I'm way, all about right? the loophole. <laughs> all about the loophole. <laughs> well, folks, that brings us to the end of our of our wire side. This was fantastic, and I wish we could have gone a little bit longer. And and uh, Stephanie, maybe we can have you back 
at some yeah. point as well. I would um, love it. Just a real, real joy to talk to you. And I'm looking forward to uh, reading your your poetry craft book. And I'm very excited <laughs> about the new one as well. Thank and, you. Thank uh, you. I want to thank all of our uh, viewers who, who took time out of their evening to come and listen to us chat uh, about poetry and speculative yes. poetry. I thank learned a lot. Thank you all so much. This was a blast. <laughs>